0: You're listening to Games GameStrategy.biz podcast. I'm James Batcher, and this week I'm joined by... Reggie Fiseme. Yes, I am delighted to be joined by former Nintendo of America president, leader in residence at Cornell University, and author of the recently released memoir, Disrupting the Game, Reggie Fisame. Thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely, James.
1: Happy to be doing this.
0: I really, really appreciate your time. And um, there is so, so much I'd like to talk to you about today. I'm going to try and keep you not more than an hour but I can't promise anything. Um, First, I'm going to start with the book, though. Um, How has the launch been so far? We're we're talking to you about a week or so after the game, after the book has come out. Um, So, like, how has the launch been so far? Like, I'm I'm a trade journalist. I like to fish for kind of sales figures and, you know, that sort of sexy comment.
1: Well, the, the launch has been incredibly, incredibly good so far. So, you know... I have to say, this industry is a bit different than the video game industry. And so, you know, the the numbers roll in a a bit more slowly than what I was used to as a video game executive. But I can say that the book has been honored to be on the Wall Street Journal's uh, top 10 list uh, after only a week. Actually, it was only on sale for uh, for five days, and I, I made that uh, that listing. So, the sell through is quite strong, uh, and most importantly, the reaction by the readers has just been incredible. Uh, you know, I do look on all of the various uh, storefronts that sell the book, uh, and where readers post comments and they post ratings. And I'm just thrilled that at this point I've got over 200 five-star ratings. People are messaging me on Twitter. Uh, They're messaging me uh, on my LinkedIn profile telling me how much they are enjoying the book. So that uh, almost more than the sales, almost more than being able to say that I'm a best-selling author, the reaction by the community has been so positive and that's, uh, that's really gratifying to see.
0: It's quite rare, like, there aren't many people within the games industry who have had the kind of profile to warrant writing a book about their lives. I mean, obviously we have, um, you know, the Askawata book, which, which kind of collected interviews with him, with him over the years. Hideo Kojima wrote a book, uh, John Romero's just announced a memoir, but there's, there still aren't that many. When you look at like the biography section of any book, <laughs> bookshop, there aren't many games people there. Like, do you think we're going to see that changing?
1: I do. Uh, and I say that because you know, video games and the industry are such a dominant force in entertainment today. I mean, it's a $200 billion business. Uh, more and more, you know, there are key people who have made just a tremendous contribution over their career. So I do think we will see more and more whether it's memoirs like mine, whether it's uh, autobiographies, whether it's biographies, I think there will be more books in particular written about the industry and about individuals within the industry. You know, Candidly, our, our industry deserves it, given its size and its cultural impact.
0: What was the experience of um, writing the book like? It must be uh, quite interesting, kind of really reflecting on everything you're going through. Like, you know, the, the process of writing is obviously um, slower, typically slower than your brain moves. So actually, like really thinking about like how to present each situation, how to, you know, what to include, what not to include. Like, what was the experience of writing it like? And did it change the way you kind of reflect on your time at Nintendo at all and in the games industry in general?
1: So what's interesting is that the book as it exists today was not my first thought in, in creating a book. My first idea was to create a book that would highlight all of the real world skills that you can learn by playing video games. So this would reinforce you know, how you get critical thinking skills by playing uh, some specific games, uh, how you improve in your communication skills, playing multiplayer games in particular. So I I had this book proposal for that concept, took it to a number of potential uh, publishers and book agents, literary agents, And each of them told me, Reggie, that's a nice idea for a speech, but it's not really a book. Um, So I had to pivot to create something else. And so this, this book as a business memoir, so capturing parts of my personal journey, coupling it with my professional journey, and then putting a button on every story I tell in the form of the so what, as in what's the so what of this story, what's the so what that I should take away, uh, really was the the second book idea that, uh, that I came up with. I also have to say that it's a situation where the pandemic uh, actually helped me write the book. And by that, I mean, without any travel, without, um, you know, the ability to, uh, you know, spend time away from my home office, it created a situation where I was writing or editing every single day. And so I was able to create the book, you know, from the start to the published day in about 18 months. Uh, but it was, it, it was, uh, it was hard work you know I, I have a, a new appreciation for journalists and uh, content creators and anyone who works in the creative space the the focus needed to you know think about these stories think about the the meaning behind these stories organizing it in a way that uh, I I believe is compelling for the reader or the audiobook listener was a tremendous amount of work. Um, and, uh, and certainly, for me, it, uh, it made me focus on all of the key lessons that I've learned uh, throughout my life and, and trying to distill those that are worthy to be shared with others.
0: That's funny because i felt I, my writing went down considerably during the uh, the pandemic because I, I tend to write most of my stuff on the train or on a plane or like while i'm travelling because typically you don't have internet access so there's mm. nothing to distract you when i'm at home i've got the internet i'm distracted by everything in the whole world ever so <laughs> um you talk about like the 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 lessons you kind of wanted to get across in your your book like you know, the 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 so what aspect of the anecdotes we actually um, ran an article kind of um, reviewing the book uh, that looked at some of the kind of the between the lines lessons, and like the main one that kind of came across is the the importance of confidence, of conviction, like of, of the the kind of build it and they will come kind of attitude. Like a lot of your stories come across as like because you believed in it enough, or at least you certainly came across that you believed in it enough. That's how things happen, or at least that convinced people to um to help make them happen. Like is we we're all kind of aware of like this very kind of confident very present Reggie who we see at on on stage E3 or during the Nintendo directs. Like, is that naturally who you are? Have you always been that kind of confident or is that something you kind of trained yourself into, like, as you've gone into the world of business?
1: Yeah, I I would frame it a little differently. I, I, I am someone who has a clear point of view and I work hard to communicate that point of view whether it's in a business meeting, whether it's in an argument amongst friends, whether it's in an interview. So I have a point of view that's different than being confident. Um, And to me, I am not uh, an individual who's full of bluster and is overconfident, Um, but I am someone who based on experiences, based on insight, based on uh, knowledge, you know, I, I do quickly come to a point of view and then try to argue that point of view as effectively as I can. And I, I do believe that helped me at Nintendo, the, the, not only the combination of, you know, at the time, 20 or 25 years of business experience that I came into the company with, but also the years of experience as a player, having played the earliest video game systems, having played my own Super Nintendo Entertainment System, having had personal experience, not only with Nintendo's best franchises, but the best franchises from Sega, from uh, PlayStation, from Xbox. Um, And so, I, I, that, that certainly provided me a background to have a point of view and to be able to articulate that point of view clearly and, and, you know, typically convincingly.
0: I guess to take a slightly different tack then. like how, how comfortable were you, like even right from the off, you know, from, from your, your E3, your famous E3 kind of in, entrance, like how comfortable were you being that visible, that public, like, cause a lot of people like this is an industry where you know certainly like when you're in the industry like go to events and so forth a lot of it does involve being on stage like you know a lot of people do speeches and panels and presentations and so forth and not a lot of people do have the confidence for that and and you know for you to yeah you know, the first time we essentially met you like to be on stage at e3 back when nintendo actually had a stage conference you got hundreds of people in the audience and the world watching like is that your kind of? How is that within your comfort zone? Is that something you're like comfortable doing, or is that something you just kind of had to gear yourself up for?
1: Yeah. So, as I joined Nintendo, I had years and years of experience, being whether it's on stage or behind a camera, and certainly I believe that experience is partly why I was able to get the job. But you know, let's be clear, that, that first E3, we certainly had a, uh, an intention to communicate a different Nintendo, a new Nintendo, a, a Nintendo that was uh, confident, a Nintendo that was aggressive in its messaging, and we had the goods to back up that position with the launch of the Nintendo DS, with some great content that we were launching late in the life cycle for the GameCube, with the, um, the sharing of the very first trailer for what would become The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. We had the goods to back up that posture But, you know, there was not a belief that, you know, I would become, you know, such a key face, such a key spokesperson for Nintendo. That wasn't part of the plan. You know, it it wasn't the intention that I would become a meme. It wasn't the intention that, you know, myself and Satoru Iwata and Shigeru Miyamoto would essentially be the key faces of Nintendo for the following 10 years or so. That was not the intention. The intention was to present a confident Nintendo and to stake a claim that we were going to compete in the industry on our own terms with our own beliefs and, uh, and to drive that... Position throughout the marketplace.
0: It may not have been the intention, but like it certainly was the effect. I mean, like, you know, the number of Reggie memes that are out there, as you say, like you know, the that classic, you know, first kick ass take nade speech. Um, you know, the the my body is ready. And like, and I love that the those are kind of referenced in later Nintendo Directs, like when you did like the Muppet one and the you know, the robot chicken one, like the it becomes a running joke. Like What's the benefits of having that kind of meme-ability, as it were? Like, like I said, most companies are not just in the games industry, but in just in business in general, most companies are quite faceless. Like they just by the nature of them, they are vast corporations of hundreds, if not thousands, of people. Like it's hard to put a relatable face on those. And yet here we had these wonderful, I wanna I don't want to say characters, not in like a de- derogatory kind of sense, but like these just these these pers- personalities um as the face of Nintendo like you say for you know well over a decade like and, and you being a crucial one like certainly it felt like that was the step change your arrival whether or not that was intentional or not like what's the effect that has on a business and, and can you kind of aim for that specifically like can someone go out and think right I'm going to become the next kind of reggie in terms of the level of memeability I'm also not convinced memeability is a word but I've used it enough now so
1: Yeah, so I'll I'll actually deal with that last question first. I I don't believe anyone can say to themselves, you know, I'm going to become a meme. Uh, You know, I am going to be the face of a company or the face of an industry. That is incredibly difficult to do. And specifically in my case, you know, it, it was not the intention at the start. And even when you look at some of those lines that have become memes, it wasn't the intention. Uh, Certainly, you know, my name is Reggie. That was, as I said earlier, that was intentional. But the my body is ready line, that came out of endless hours of rehearsals and my just trying to make Shigeru Miyamoto laugh. Uh, and that line did. And so it's it, it's something that I continue to use in the presentation and I used live on stage. The, you know, uh, that's all, you know, time for me to get back to playing Animal Crossing on my Nintendo 3DS. That was, you know, a, a closing line, a throwaway line in a video that we did not intend to become a meme. Now, once once we had these nuggets, we did have fun with it. Um, you know, the, the robot chicken uh, skit with me throwing a fireball at a fan asking for Mother 3, you know, that was a result of endless, endless uh, meetings with journalists where I would always be asked, well, what about Mother 3? You know, and, and uh, we decided to have fun with it. Uh, using uh, the variety of different uh, lines and experience in the the, the Muppet uh, experience that we had at E3, you know that that certainly was intentional and and a bit of a a wink and a smile to the fans. Uh, but I, I think it is nearly impossible for an individual to to uh, have. The intention out of nowhere to become a meme—I think that's incredibly difficult and, um, you know, just in- incredibly um, uh, foolish, really, to think about in in that in that term.
0: Looking at another aspect of this, when you were first introduced, like way back in, I believe it was two thousand four, and um, you were one of the few folks of color to be kind of visible as a gaming executive. Now fast forward to 2022 and that doesn't seem to have changed as much as we would have hoped. From your point of view, like what does that mean for the industry at large? Like the lack of representation, certainly at like the executive level.
1: You know, I, I think it's incredibly disappointing for the industry and it, it highlights a broader issue. Uh, I do believe the industry's commitment to diversity, and and diversity in its broadest scope of uh, individuals taking their whole self uh, to work, uh, leveraging the experiences that make each of us unique. Uh, I see that the games industry has been woefully behind uh, embracing that level of diversity. Uh, You don't see it in the executive ranks. You don't see it in the leadership ranks of key developers. Uh, It's incredibly difficult to find it in various games, right? I mean, for, for, for me as a black man, with with my particular skin tone, my my hair uh, uh, curls, and everything else, it's difficult to you know make a character that looks like me, and it shouldn't be. Um, and so I I see an industry that is behind in embracing everything that makes us different, um, and that's uh, that's disappointing
0: the diversity conversation has been it feels like it's been much more prominent in the last few years like there seems to be a growing awareness that this is an issue that the industry needs to deal with um and i i've never never stops kind of disappointing me like when you go to talks and you hear people say like they talk about these moments in their career where like they realize they were the only woman or the only black person or the only black woman like in in a room like at any at any given time like did you ever have any moments like that yourself like you know you're this you know big important person at this big important company like but do you ever have any of those did you ever have any of those moments where like oh I am literally the only top black gaming executive doing this right now like and uh, if so like how did that feel?
1: Well I, I certainly have reflected on the fact that you know w- whether I was the first American uh, to lead Nintendo of America, in that that president role first black American, first black American, to be part of the executive committee at Nintendo, you know, typically uh, the only uh, black person at uh, you know the, the senior leadership of industry uh, councils, uh, you know it, it 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 was always there. Um, my biggest you know moment, uh, and I capture this in the book, is you know that first E three for me. In 2004, where no one knows who I am, and I go to the side area of Nintendo stage as the crowd is filling in to the ballroom, and you know the fact that someone mistakes me for security because I happen to be a tall black man in uh, in a suit with a uh, a, a black T-shirt underneath, you know that's disappointing, um, and that certainly you know stuck with me um, and continues to stick with me. But James, I was at a point where I recognized that you know I would be the the, the lone black face in a room, and not only became comfortable in that situation. But I would, I would use it as a teachable moment. I would use it as an opportunity to reinforce uh, across the spectrum of events and activities that I participated in that we needed more uh, diversity and, a, and a, a broader range of individuals who brought unique experiences to bear, whether it was at Nintendo, whether it was at, a, at an industry event, uh, whatever the case may be
0: you've done a lot of work personally like over the years like lowering the barriers for marginalized folks to get into the industry like and in addition to kind of everything you're doing like there's now a ton of like organizations and events and networks and there's a lot of people working really hard to kind of improve that diversity when do you think like you know not the risk as hard as it is to kind of put a pin you know on a specific roadmap like when do you think we'll, we'll get to the point where the game industry at large is better representative of, of reality? Like when we've got like more than one black female game CEO and they're at the level of like a Nintendo of America sort of company?
1: You know, um, it, that's a difficult question because, you know, in order to see that future, you need to see broad diversity at, you know, let me call it the vice president level across all of these uh, companies uh, across the industry. You need to see diversity at the uh, senior executive level. You, you need to see it in the levels below president or, or chief executive in order to be able to see the pipeline of people who could step into that top leadership role at some point in time. And so I I do fear it's going to take us quite some time because I don't see that level of diversity one level down or two levels down or three levels down. It isn't there yet. Um, And uh, as I said, that's that's a disappointing statement to make.
0: Let's um, rewind a little kind of prior to your time at Nintendo. Um, the, the book really kind of goes into other jobs that you've had, like perhaps ones that people don't know you as well for. So you've, you've worked at places like Pizza Hut, VH1, Panda Express, Guinness. Um, you bring in a lot of different experience from different industries to a games business. Um, and I think it comes it becomes apparent across the book, like you know, the the different attitudes, the different, like the different ways of thinking that you had from those jobs kind of influence and you build on those during your time at Nintendo, like how can this sort of broader experience help other games, businesses kind of avoid stagnating, essentially, you know, like getting out of that, that long running traditional games industry thinking by bringing in new kind of ideas?
1: Well, I I think this, this is critically important. Um, Certainly if you look back over the last 15 years in the industry, you tend to see cycles where you know, one particular game or one particular genre has success, and then everyone jumps into that genre, right? You know, w- whether it's uh, battle royale games, you know, I-, I can guarantee you over the next couple years, there are going to be a series of Elden Ring type clones because of the massive success that Elden Ring has had. I believe in order to broaden the way the industry thinks about the content, about the player is to leverage uh, whether it's personal experiences and individuals from outside the industry or just encouraging more what I call lateral thinking. So looking across other industries and taking the best of those uh, industries and, and creating ideas based off of that type of content or that type of initiative and bringing it to the industry. I think it's critically important for that to happen in order for this industry to continue being vibrant. Um you know, in, in many ways, I see parallels from where the industry was in the early 2000s, where it was, you know, nothing but sequels, um, you know, I, ideas were uh, being taken from one game and, and leveraged almost exactly into another game. And it took Nintendo and their mentality, to want to expand the gaming universe, to get more people playing video games. And, you know, so what did they do? They introduced different technology. So the Wii Remote or the Nintendo DS, they pushed on what it meant to be a video game. So with products like Wii Fit or Brain Age, you know, my hope is that today's industry, you know, thinks about these lessons and applies them to today so that we don't get stuck in doing more and more iterations of what the current successful genre is.
0: I wonder if the industry can even recreate that kind of or, or, or have a second shift like that. Like, I, I don't want to be pessimistic. I'd love to be proven wrong, but... Yeah, you know, the DS and the Wii were incredible for broadening the audience, but that was in an age prior to smartphones. You know, the the sort of experiences you, that thrived on DS and Wii are now available on smart devices like these ubiquitous smartphones that everyone has got, um, or certainly almost everyone's got, with no need to kind of buy a just a game specific device. You can just get it on the device you're already using. Um, like, I, and I thought we're, we're tapping into something that's been bothering me for a while. Like, but the you know the I feel like the, the, the bigger the industry has got, the more valuable it's got, the more shareholders it's attracted, like the, more, like the more risk-averse it's become. Like, as you say, like we are back at that stage where everything is sequenced, everything is trying to recreate or one-up the thing that's already big. Like, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a lot more Elden Rings. I'm surprised we haven't seen more companies trying to do, say, a GTA Five, given that's now like one of, if not the biggest selling games of all time. Like all the, the bigger players covet the success that is already out there by recreating that success. And I don't know how we get past that mentality and how we can stump, how we can find something so transformative like the DS, like the Wii that attracts that broader audience that opens up larger levels of, of success, because essentially everyone's already playing free to play games on mobile.
1: You know, I, I am, I am more optimistic Um, But what I hope is that there is more exploration in a variety of forms of content coupled with what technology can bring to bear in creating something completely new. And so just, just as a small example, you know, what if the, the narrative magic uh, of a game like the Last of Us is leveraged with, you know, the, the best in current uh, AI plus machine learning so that the end result was a narrative driven, but completely open world type of experience. Uh, that now, so now you're blending genres. You're 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 really creating something very very different. Um, my hope is that this is the type of content, as an example, that uh, that's pursued. You know, another another you know harebrained idea is you know how to create something that is as a game persistent, but as a player, you have a wide range of of different approaches or, or different adventures that you can do in the game. But because it's persistent, I'm able to stumble across what you've done in your exploration of the area and you know that then leads me to have a different experience than you had when you first were in that part of the game. To me, these are things that on one hand leverage some core elements or core approaches in uh, today's video game experience, but through technology or, or through the use of, of uh, you know, better computing uh, capabilities, better uses of AI and machine learning, it can lead to a new experience. You know, I, I've gone on record that I, I believe technology like blockchain, as an example, could be used to create different types of experiences for players. But in the end, it has to be a great game. It has to be a great experience. And blockchain is just, an enabler from a technology experience that brings it to bear. My hope is that it's some of these types of initiatives that will fuel the ongoing creativity that this industry has has had uh, and enables us to continue having new and unique experiences and and experiences that you can't have on on a smart device. These are experiences that you need a dedicated gaming platform to enjoy. I believe that these, these types of experiences can be in our future.
0: So I'm definitely going to be circling back and talking to you about blockchain in a bit. But like I kind of want to pick up on something you were talking about there, like the idea of technology that allows persistence. And this is genuinely something I've been optimistic and, and hopeful for over the last few years is um there's a number of companies that are investigating cloud computing and like the these cloud powered experiences that are large scale simulations so like the most famous one obviously is um uh improbable which i remember talking to them back in 2014 so before they'd like got their their initial investment or like certainly their, their bigger investments and they were pitching ideas or like all right these are games where yeah these are persistent effects of what you do in the world like they stay there for every player if you you know scavengers which was the poster child for a while is all right if you're exploring a world like you if there's footprints in the snow that's another player like you know that, that, that another player has been there and like having all these impacts like stuff like that always excited me and yet no one can quite make that stick we've had improbable have tried um and they're now kind of pivoting away from games and more towards the kind of just broader simulation tech. Uh, There's a company called Hadian who's been doing this, but they've mainly done a couple of tests with EVE Online. Ubisoft has got its new Scalar tex- technology, and perhaps something will come of that, but we'll only see it from Ubisoft games. Like, I, what, I, I, I assume you kind of follow this sort of stuff because you know, you're obviously um very kind of prominent industry person. You're, you're keeping up to date with the technology. Like, What is it that's, that's holding this backlog that's taking so long not that we're getting impatient or anything, but it's taking so long to kind of realise these ambitions. I mean, that um, I remember to give one more improbable-powered example, there was a Boston Studios did Worlds Adrift, which was this really interesting MMO where it's all floating sky islands and you build like a flying pirate ship essentially and you search and you explore ruins and the idea was that you would be exploring these civilizations and every time you see like say a crashed ship that's not set dressing that's not something the developers have put there that is genuinely where a player crashed their ship and there's a genuine story behind that i love that idea but the game only survived i think it was like a year in early access and it just Dried up. Like, what's holding us back from what seems like a really obvious and good idea?
1: So, f- from my perspective, th- the issues are these: one, um, you need you need a really good technical platform to build this on, and um, many of these companies. Are have tried or are building their own tech platform to bring this to life, and that's that's incredibly difficult to do. You know, I suspect part of the reason they do that is, you know, th- they they don't want to uh, be beholden to someone else's platform, someone else's tech, when they're trying to build out their vision. But many of these companies. Uh, go down this path. And and it is incredibly difficult and financially draining to do. So that's the first hurdle. Um, The second hurdle is that the gameplay itself needs to be compelling. So said another way, there needs to be more to the idea than simply I've stumbled on someone else's footprints, or I've stumbled upon someone else's uh, ship on an alien planet, and for the content that I've seen, um, that's where it falls short. You know, the, the the core experience is just not up to snuff versus uh, you know what what great games offer from uh, you know an experience or storytelling standpoint. So technically, it's challenging. Uh, secondly, the the core gameplay and gameplay loop needs to be there. And, and uh, at least in the ones I've seen, um, it hasn't been there. Um, lots of companies are continuing to try and do this. And, and this is where uh, computer capabilities and, um, and cloud technology is helping. So again, I'm optimistic, but it's incredibly hard to do.
0: So let's go back to the other technology we were talking about, uh, blockchain. So um, yeah, you've you've been speaking recently about like your optimism for blockchain. You said you know, you're a big believer in the tech. We're in danger of we we could be in danger of having a whole podcast on this alone. Um, but the <laughs> to put it mildly, blockchain is somewhat divisive. I mean, games. We have a policy at the moment of we are not covering blockchain gaming overall at the moment because there's so much that's unproven because there's so many issues that need to be addressed around the way the technology works the impact of the technology certainly environmentally the propensity of uh you know of, of frauds and scams out there now obviously like it, as you say it, it's it's a technology it's an enabler like by itself blockchain itself does not necessarily is not necessarily a good or bad thing I, I'm starting to come around to that, that perspective but there still is a lot of backlash against it like you know almost every games company notable games company like as in one that's kind of got an established fan base that's announced anything to do with nfts or blockchain has seen instant backlash and the number of the number of companies that have like backtracked their their um their their plans like sometimes within 24 hours has been almost impressive um what what are your thoughts on the backlash against like you're you're a big believer in blockchain? Like, what are your thoughts on the backlash against it? Like the the complaints, the the I've, I've I've yet to see in my career. I I struggle to remember another shift in technology or a shift in business model that people were more ang- vocally angry about.
1: Well, so let, let me give you an example there. Um so um uh, microtransactions and uh, in-game monetization loops back in the uh, early days of free-to-play games. Uh, similar type of backlash. I mean, I, I remember the GDC where Satoru Wada made comments about uh, free-to-play or free-to-start games and how, he saw you know, that they were a significant danger for the industry. Um, incredibly divisive. And yet here we are today where there are high quality uh, free to play or free to start games. There are in-game monetization loops that fans are, um, you know, maybe no one's ever happy to spend money uh, on content, but they they don't mind spending money for outfits or things of that nature and they get enjoyment from that so you know there there are times as industries are going through change that there are divisive elements there are also times when industries are going through change where, because the underlying technology isn't yet completely proven or completely sorted, that there are scams, that there are bad actors taking advantage of the situation. And again, here, I'm old enough to remember the earliest days of the internet um, and the scams and the issues and so i I understand the divisiveness I, I really do uh, and certainly the environmental elements are uh, uh, th- this is something that has to be solved um, and not not all uh, blockchain is uh, environmentally so disruptive. but I do think if you step back and consider how smart contracts, consider how uh, a a permanent ledger uh, that enables a player to uh, earn own content that they create within a game, within a platform, you know, to me, these are seeds of ideas that I think could be quite interesting. Certainly, there's a lot to be proven out. And, and just as we're recording this, you know, the, the massive loss in value of different uh, platforms in the, in the blockchain environment that we've seen over the past you know, 10 days. You know, it tells you that this technology still is immature. But in my mind, that's not a reason to just completely uh, push it aside to say that it can never be anything of substance or a value. I think that would be a mistake to take that posture.
0: I think part of the issue is that we've yet to see a use case for blockchain in games that can't be done without blockchain in games like the um and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about a little while ago about you know the, the fact that the, the games industry so often builds on ideas or you know iterates ever so slightly on ideas of things that are already popular so you know the poster child for blockchain games is Axie infinity which is often referred to as like kind of a pokemon clone um pokemon's been going since 1996 you know and the, the idea of Individual monsters that have their own stats, their own identity, their own um, you know distinguishing qualities that that can then be sold on. Pokemon have been traded since nineteen ninety six. Like each, I remember on the original <laughs> game, bar, like each one had its own unique stats in terms of you know attack, defense, etc. And even like the trainer ID. So if you traded your Pokemon, wherever you know, however many times it traded, it still remembered your original trainer name. Like so, this is something that we have had to an extent since you know, the mid nineties and blockchain hasn't proven that it's doing anything particularly new other than the ongoing promise that you can, you can sell these and you can monetize these.
1: Oh, well, you're, you're absolutely right. And and I have said this myself that there needs to be a use case where you've, you've got a really fun, creative experience that leverages the technology for people to come around. I completely agree. And, you know, the, the, the the what if that I give you is, you know, so what if there was an experience that blended the best of Pokemon with, with the best of uh, you know, five other genres or game experiences. uh, And all of them had this ability for you to uh, play, create your own character and then exchange them with someone else and get something of value back. So now it goes beyond a particular singular game or singular experience, It, it really, touches on a variety of different experiences, you know, then that gets interesting and that gets compelling. Um, you know, n- not to bring my former employer uh, into this argument, but for the sake of, of a conversation, you know, imagine on one platform, you know, you, you could play uh, link to your heart's content and, and Uh, generate all types of buffs and abilities um, and uh, in the same environment be able to exchange uh, for consideration your link for someone else's um, you know pokemon creature um, so that it's all based on one platform the the interoperability is there um, I think that's kind of interesting. And that doesn't exist today. Each one of these experiences is unique to itself. And you could only do activities within that particular game. That's where I think the technology as an underlying enabler gets interesting.
0: The interoperability is like another thing that is often sold, but I, I, I've seen developers kind of backlashing against this. Um, the the Twitter thread I saw that was great was um, I can't remember who it was, but a developer was going on about how just simple things, like if you built like a dice, like a cube, like the most simple shape you can make in 3D graphics, how that cube operates in one game will be completely different in another game, depending on like the engine, the metrics, mm-hmm. the gravity, the physics, like, like there's so many barriers to overcome. And yeah, I'm, I'm starting to come, I'm, I'm starting to become aware of the fact that yeah, eventually we may overcome these barriers but they seem like such big hurdles like you know the, the the dream people are selling and it is it is a dream at this point and people are very much selling it the dream people are selling is such a long term vision but said with such kind of short term promise i think that's that's part of the issue that we're facing in this this blockchain space
1: look i i i don't disagree uh, you can make the same analogies to VR, right? How, how long has it been that people have been selling a vision that you know VR immersive experiences are going to take over the gaming industry, and they'll be the most compelling experience you can ever have? And uh, it's been incredibly difficult to deliver on that vision. So, I I do not take for granted what it will require in order for this type of vision to come about. But, and maybe this is my disruptive nature, I think there's value in thinking about these issues, thinking about potentially how to overcome them, because if in the end, content can be delivered to the player that is unique, differentiated, compelling, uh, fun to play. You know, I I think uh, there's value to be created with those types of experiences.
0: We're definitely in danger of going down too far a rabbit hole, and I'm uh, I'm conscious <laughs> how much how much time of yours I'm taking up. So there's a couple of other broader topics I'd like to pick your brain on, if I may. Um, I've got about ten more minutes. Ten more minutes. Okay, we can do this. Uh, right. First of all, one is that um, labor has become a very serious issue for games companies. Uh, we've seen a lot of complaints and allegations and lawsuits and everything against uh, Activision, Ubisoft, even Nintendo of America recently in regards to so many things pay, benefits, harassment, discrimination, abuse. And obviously, like Nintendo, I think is mainly like kind of the, the disparity in pay between how contractors work. Um, I mean, treat your thoughts are like where you see these conversations going. Like there seems to be a much lower tolerance for any kind of disparity in how people are treated within games workplaces. Like where do you see these conversations going or where do you hope this
1: all leads? Well, look, I, I believe that fundamentally uh, company leadership is responsible for the culture of the company, M- meaning, you know, the way leadership behaves, the values they not only talk about, but reinforce, the policies that are put in place. Culture is a leadership issue. And I believe that uh, leaders need to be very thoughtful about the culture they are creating, the culture they are perpetuating in order for employees to do their very best work, and you know, I, I can say with pride and confidence that as I led Nintendo of America, we shaped the culture in a very positive way. Um, you know, and I I think as as you asked the question, you know, there are unfortunately too many examples of companies that have not created an effective culture. Um, and I, 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 it, it, I don't believe this is unique to the games industry, uh, but I do believe, unfortunately, we have too many examples in the games industry of, of this type of um, uh, perpetuation of bad cultures. Um, you know, when you get into the specifics of any company in any example, I, I think what's critically important is understanding exactly what's going, understanding whether the issue is systemic uh, or whether it is, uh, you know, a uh, a limited uh, number of issues. Uh, and and to be clear, you know, be, because we're all people uh, and because You know, a leader can't be in in every room, uh, which is why culture is so important. You know, unfortunately, there are always individual uh, employee issues that need to be understood and and need to be positively worked through. Uh, But the critical question is whether there are systemic issues happening in a particular organization. Um, It's a, it's a, issue that leaders need to spend a significant amount of time really being thoughtful about
0: i agree it's it's something that we want to see a lot more leadership teams take more seriously and I, i'm seeing all these things i'm covering all these things over the last couple of years and i'm just i'm hoping that what we're seeing is the foundation here of a better industry five, five ten years time um there was one more recent story i kind of want to pick your brain on um Nintendo released its full-year financial results last year, and so last year, last week. Um, and one of the things that was said was that um, the transition from Switch is a major focus, that was the quote, a major focus for Nintendo at the moment. Now, this is something we've discussed on the site. The Nintendo had a track record of coming up with these incredible barrier-breaking consoles, the Wii and the DS, and then whatever followed them didn't quite, build on that the wii u and the 3ds didn't quite didn't quite build and it didn't quite capture the same level of success if you were still at nintendo like or or, you know from your outside perspective like what is it that nintendo can do to capitalize on the switch like they finally have a console that has sold more than the uh the wii the original wii their whole talk of like a multi you know multi-switch households could get them to the stage of the ds levels of a of penetration like What is it you think that Nintendo needs to do next to to not lose momentum of this incredible generation they've had?
1: Well, first, I think it's important in looking at the overall history of this industry and recognize how rare it is for a company to move from one successful platform to the next. As I think about it, I can only point to two examples where this has been done uh, over the last 30 plus years. Sony moving from the original PlayStation to the PlayStation 2, right, from strength to strength. The other example I would point out is Nintendo moving from the Game Boy slash Game Boy Advance generation to the Nintendo DS generation. so let's just acknowledge that you know, moving from one successful platform to the next is incredibly difficult and challenging to do. Uh, you know, specific to Nintendo and, and Nintendo Switch, you know the company has also said that in their view, the Switch is still you know, somewhat halfway through its life cycle. So if that's true, then the company needs to be thinking about what it's going to do over the next you know, four or five years or so to continue the core business momentum for the switch. Um, that's job one. And then job two is following the heels of that to be thinking on what's next and, and what the future holds. So it's You know, it's it's quite a heavy lift to be done. Um, You know, I believe that, you know, first and foremost, you need to be thinking about the content and what's going to be the content pipeline to keep the player engaged. Um, I do think you have to look at history and, and what are some of the historical tactics that have worked to maintain a... Life cycle of a particular generation, and you know that includes everything from mid-cycle upgrades to uh, looking at how you think about pricing and value. There's a number of different tactics that you can play, um, but fundamentally the content pipeline needs to be there. Um, you know, as yeah, you know, I, I continue to be very active in this industry. I'm I'm active from Uh, an investor perspective, I'm active uh, as an advisor. And I I think that uh, being aware of uh, demographic changes, being aware of geographic opportunities, being aware about how technology is continuing to evolve. These are all the things that a company like Nintendo needs to be thinking about in order to successfully launch the system after switch.
0: Reggie, thank you so much for joining me today. I really, really do appreciate your time.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, James.
0: Don't forget, folks, Disrupting the Game is available now in hardback and ebook. Uh, and now, Reggie, I presume you're off to play Animal Crossing on your 3DS.
1: Uh, there you go. <laughs> Actually, I, I, uh, I need to go back and, um, and play some Switch games, both uh, some Nintendo games and some indie games. I, I think I'm going to take a break and play a little Switch.
0: This is, this is the great thing about retirement. You can catch up on your backlog.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly right.
0: Thank you, dear listener, for joining us. You can find previous episodes of this podcast on the podcasting platform of your choice. And as always, you can find more news, insight and analysis to the world behind video games at GamesIndustry.biz.